You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So let's look at this psalm. The psalm itself is only 12 verses split into three sections, really, 1 to 4, 5 to 8, and 9 to 12. The first four verses we would paraphrase as the passion for God's house. The passion for God's house. The second, the middle section will be the pilgrimage to God's house, the journey to the house of the Lord. And this is a fascinating section for us. And then the final four verses, 19, 11, and 12, will be praise in God's house when you get there. So let's read the first four verses. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Selah. So in the first verse there, how lovely are your dwelling places. This sets us up with the theme of the whole psalm. The psalmist has a love for God's house, for God's dwelling place. And it says in verse 2 that he longed, my soul longed and yearned, or fainteth if you're reading a King James. It will say there, This is speaking of not just a desire that you want to know something. This is a much stronger word than that. It means to come to that place, the end of yourself, to come to the end of your own strength with that intense longing. And this challenged me when I thought about this because in the Western world, we consider ourselves fairly self-sufficient. I think that's one of our biggest undoings in some respects. We've learned to get through our days provide our own food and do all these sorts of things without necessarily having recourse to go to the Lord over it. That's something that is unique maybe to our 21st century generation in that respect. But that sort of, you know, we don't turn our mind to the Lord on certain things that I believe in other places of the world they probably do. This is the cry of someone who is desperate. This, I believe this yearning coming to the end of your own strength is indicating not someone who has got everything together and is in that place where they're pretty, pretty sorted and everything's ticking along nicely, this is the cry of someone who is utterly desperate in life and they are almost throwing themselves upon the house of the Lord, upon mercy. They're fainting, bringing themselves to the end of their own strength, to that point where God has to intervene. And we need to ask ourselves, do we long for God like that? Do we even have any idea what that sort of longing for God is like? I'm sure some may, some, some may not, and that's okay. But, you know, understand that, commit it to the Lord. Listen to Tozer on this subject. He says, I want deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low state. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is often a result of our lack of desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of spiritual growth. An acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us he waits so long, so very long, in vain. Now that's a tough quote. That's a challenging quote. That should convict all of of our souls. But should also give us that hope that however much we have of the Lord, there is always more that the Lord can reveal to us. Because ultimately he, he, he can't ever out know the Lord in that sense. Then look, it says, my heart, verse 2, my heart and my flesh sing, it says in my verse. Your translation might read cry out. Again, it's a very sort of loud crying out, but this one is crying out uh, with joy to the living God. It says, the heart and the flesh 
For me, that's really talking of both the inner man and the outer man, the thoughts, the mind, the soul, and that is manifested in your outer man, your actions and what you do. Both of those parts of your being are singing and crying out for joy to the living God. This is, the, this is what the psalmist, the sons of Korah here, are getting at when they love the dwelling places of God so much. And it says joy. And let's be careful with that word. We're not talking about here, I do not believe, a joy that is gained through your circumstances, your immediate surroundings. I would say this is talking about the joy that is given to you supernaturally, even if you are in the midst of a despairing situation, through the Lord. This doesn't mean you walk around with a massive smile on your face the whole day. You might not have any facial expression, even in that place where you know that the Lord is there. But that is the ultimate truth. You're falling back on those truths of the Lord. And we know that it's often easy to be quite miserable. I find I struggle with this at the moment as a Christian. When you're looking at everything that's going on in the world and in the church, and it grieves your heart, but yet you also know in some way you're, you're maybe part to blame or responsible for some of these things, or you need to bring yourself before the Lord. And sometimes you just don't know what to do. I, I've, you know, you're at that self where you want to be. I need to be at the end of my own strength. All of the solutions I'm coming up with are not working. The only thing I can do is cry out to the Lord. Do we have that joy? And again, let, let's be honest. You have to be honest with yourselves. The Bible gives us the clue to where that joy comes from. You get it in this psalm. You get it in Psalm 16. You get it when, from the book of Romans. It's the love of God shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. These things are supernatural. But so often we try and understand those things in the natural. We consider joy to be happiness from circumstances. We consider peace to be the time when you're pretty chilled and nothing's going on in your life. So we need to think long and hard about these things. Look at verse 3. The bird also has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Again, remember the Psalms, this beautiful poetry here. You get this image of this man standing outside the tabernacle. He's longing for the house of God. He's singing, he's crying out for joy. He's standing there, and as he's standing there, he watches, he sees this bird fly over the outer rim, fly over to the gates, doesn't have to go through the altar, doesn't have to go through all the sacrificial process to get to the Lord. This bird just flies straight in and nests on the side of the tabernacle. And the, the, the idea he's getting at is he's using that as an illustration to say, look, I'm, just, I'm even jealous of that bird. Look at it just flying straight in there and being so close to God. It's a wonderful imagery that we have here from this psalmist. But notice, so far, we've had three verses. We've already seen three different names for God. We've seen Lord of hosts in verse 1, Adonai Sevaot. This is the, the Lord there, Tetragrammaton. It's four Hebrew letters. We've mentioned it uh, a lot. The verb form of that same word that is the holy name of God is a verb, Chaya, in Hebrew. And this is the best translation is, I will be. Basically, what we see here, in the actual name of God, there is a connection between being itself and God's personal name. He is the source of all being, and everything else derives its being from him. That's what this name is trying to get across. He is also the Lord of hosts, that's speaking of the armies of heaven, because he is the source of all being. And then notice the next name for God. So we have Lord of hosts, and then we have living God. Verse 2, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And the point of emphasizing this title is that in amongst the ancient Near Eastern culture, there were many, many claims for deity. Every tribal culture had their own claim for deity, and they had their temples, they had their statues. So what was it that was different about this tabernacle? 
He's, make, he's emphasizing that point. Let me read you Jeremiah 10, verse 9 to 14, where we see the prophet speaking and giving us a glimpse into this culture. He's speaking of the surrounding nations. He says, They are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion, their idols and their wood, their beaten silver that they bring to Tarshish, the gold from Euphaz, the work of a craftsman and of the hands of a goldsmith. Violet and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skilled men. He's describing all these different religious systems that he has around him. And then he says, look in verse 10. Well, I'll read it to you. Jeremiah 10, verse 10. He says, but the Lord, same word if we've just read in our psalm, is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And I believe the psalmist is drawing on that phrase here that we have. He is emphasizing that we are, this temple is not like every other temple. We are not like every other people. We have been brought into being by the living God, and therefore our worship is connecting us with being, the being of Yahweh, of the living God. Huge theological points being made. And then the final one, the final name for God. He says, my king. So we have the Lord of hosts, we have the living God, and now we have the king, royalty. Looks forward, obviously, to the kingdom age. As it says in Zechariah, one day the king will come. He will be king over the all, all the earth. And in that day there will be one. There will be no one who will even challenge him. There will be no false religions. There will be no misconceptions about God. It will be the living God on the throne, the king. And there will be no more mistakes like that. What a day that will be. You see, what we think of God, and I believe why this is so critical, we've seen these three names in the first three verses of this man who stands at the house of God longing for God. What an understanding he displays of God just by using those names. What we think of God affects how we worship God. If we have a low conception of God, you don't worship things that are really not that worthy of worship. The famous quote by Tozer, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's just one, now I'm going to read you the rest of that quote because the rest of the quote is rarely ever quoted, it's a bit longer. But he continues, that's just one sentence out of a whole longer quote. Listen, he goes on, he says, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. Man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshipper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he had, he had not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceived God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christians, but of the company of Christians that encompasses the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is its idea of God, just as its most significant message is what it says about him or leaves unsaid. For its silence is often more eloquent than its speech, it can never escape the self-disclosure of its witness concerning him. I love that quote. Now, especially important is our conception of God. We do not take our conception of God from the imagination of our own minds. So easy to do. And, and you know, I know we've all heard, like, you know, I can speak to members of my family who are, who are not saved, and they all, you know, well, my God is like this. I don't, this is not what that, that's getting at. This is probably getting at ways, speaking of, we are, they are saved, I believe, believers in this Old Testament sense. But yet still, we have that tendency to make God into our own image in the way we think about him, what he approves of, what he does not approve of, how much he loves us, how much he loves sinners. And we just see things through our own eyes. And again, we need to try and make sure that we see through God's eyes, through the word of God. 
we must not take our image of God from other Christians. This is very important. I've learned this the hard way in the last week or so. We do not take our image of God from the failings of others. All of those things, I believe, will lead us to despair and into error, ultimately. There is one who is worthy. There is one. That is it. We must, as clearly as we can, shape our understanding of God through the written, revealed word of God, through the spirit of God, and through the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. How blessed are those who continually engage in worship. That is what this is saying. This is speaking at this time in the context of the psalm of those Levites who dwell permanently around the tabernacle courtyards. They are involved. Their whole life is wrapped up with the service of God. They are ever praising you. They do it constantly, not just on the weekends, not just when they have a bit of spare time. They are constantly in the service of God. And I believe this is giving us a glimpse of our future, what awaits us. It says those who are permanently abiding in the presence of the Lord. Is that not how heaven is described? Revelation 3.12, to him that overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no, out no more. There will be no need to leave and come back. You will permanently always be with the Lord and you will be constantly praising him and you will know no different because you will really be part, the body will be united again with the head in that sense. Verse 5, how blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you. These are speaking of the people who dwell there permanently. Not only is their heart there, their strength comes from God alone. They're on the path. And look at that phrase. I love that phrase, the highways to Zion, it says in my translation there. It's a wonderful phrase. The picture we get here is of this caravan of pilgrims working their way from the surrounding cities and small districts of Judea and Samaria up to Jerusalem. And they're on these paths, these highways. And they're saying, you're blessed when your strength is drawn from the Lord as long as you're on the path, the highways to Zion. That means your heart, your travel, you've planned, you're on the journey up to Zion where God dwells. There's no room for backsliding when you're on that path. There's no room for anything else when your heart is conceived with reaching Zion. The ways, the past, the going up, the journey to the place of public worship, that's where their heart was. Their affections and their thoughts were accompanying them. But notice, it doesn't say that it's a smooth ride, but the very next verse says, it's a very unusual phrase in Hebrew, the valley of Baca or valley of weeping you might read in your translation. Most scholars assume that weeping is the, is the phrase, that, the connotation that's being given here. And it's speaking that, basically, for most of these pilgrims, they are going to be coming from a place of weeping. And this is a realisation that the fallen world is a tough place to live. They are coming from a place of weeping. But he then says, the pilgrim going through those dark valleys can have it turned into a spring of blessing whilst on the highway to Zion. And this goes back to that same point. If you are on the path to Zion, you can see the temple. That's why Jerusalem's always strived as being up. You go up to Jerusalem. You see that temple on the hill. You know God is dwelling there in his Shekinah glory. It's a good example and model for us. You can turn a weeping into a time of spring. Religious worship, going up to the house of God, can turn the journey of life that otherwise would be gloomy and sad into joy. It can make the world's tears a world of comfort. 
by the presence of the Saviour, the influence of the Spirit, the ultimate com comforter, such times can become a season of joy. But make no mistake, you will go through those times. Verse 7, strength to strength. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. And what a beautiful picture we have here of the pilgrimage. This band of travelling worshippers coming up to the house of the Lord. Their conversation, their songs as they sung on the way. You can read descriptions of what these events were like in, in historians. These travelling people usually coming up to the festivals at this time. Encouraging one another, meeting with family, with friends that you haven't seen from different districts. Speaking of what you're doing, getting your sacrifices ready. They kept their minds on the highways to Zion. And as you get closer and closer you have that realization that your journey is coming to an end and you, and you will reach your destination. The distance traveled is constantly diminishing. Soon you're going to come over the peak of the mountains. You're going to see those towers, those glistening walls of Jerusalem. And then often it was customary to cheer and to sing certain numbers of the Psalms. And I believe this is a wonderful illustration of the Christian life. Bands of the redeemed by prayer and praise, counsel, songs, by a feeling that we're drawing near to Zion, our heavenly home, until we see that light glittering on the walls of Jerusalem, metaphorically speaking, or one day literally speaking. We increase in strength, we become more confident as we see God overcome trials in our life. We bear trials better, we overcome difficulties more easily, we walk more firmly, we tread on our way more cheerfully as we get closer step by step to Zion. And ultimately it says you will appear before God in Zion. The idea here is that this same procession that have travelled through the Valley of Weeping on the highways of Zion, they will arrive in Zion. When they are there with their God in the presence of God's dwelling place, their wishes will be gratified and their joy would be full. Every true believer that loves God will appear in heaven, in Zion, the upper Zion, you could say, or the, the Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. And there their joy will be complete. All those long-cherished desires of their hearts will be fully gratified. Their brokenness endured in this world, this fallen world, will be completely healed and everything they've ever hoped for and more will be realized when you're in the presence of the Lord. You see, this momentary affliction cannot compare to the weight of glory that awaits the pilgrims in Zion. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold, our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. The God of hosts is one who hears prayer and our intimacy with God is vitally connected to our prayer life. Make no mistake about it. And I find, again, this is a very challenging thing because it's, I find it much more easier to sit and do a Bible study than I do to sit on my own in silence and pray. I don't know if any of you get that. It's much easier to pick up a book, read a book, read a Bible study than to actually sit there, push through that awkward time of silence, push through that time when you run out of things to say and just wait on the Lord. That's much more difficult. But you read books of Saints of Old, School of Prayer by Andrew Murray, Ian Bounds' work on prayer, you know that these are the times where God really touches your heart intimately. Our fellowship with God is connected to this. And it's connected with the word of God too, though. The things aren't separate. John 15, 7, Jesus said, If you abide in me, this famous passage about the vine, and it says, Then my words abide in you, and whatever you wish, he's speaking about whatever you ask in prayer, it will be done for you. It's not a blanket, one size fits all. There's context to that, obviously. My point is more that it's connected to our prayer life. In verse 9, he says, God is our shield, our protection, the anointed one, the Davidic king, the ultimate king. And then look at verse 10 and 11. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. 
I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord God gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. And this is really his summation now. He's basically saying that one day, even in the courts, is better than a thousand outside. Anything that's offered outside will pale ultimately in significance. It might seem good for a season, but ultimately it's going nowhere. Is that our attitude, I have to admit? Right now it's hard to keep that attitude, isn't it? It's hard not to focus on temporal things because they're part of our life. And it's not that temporal things are necessarily bad, it's our focus. And we can learn a lesson here from this man who's standing at the courts of God, envious of even the birds being able to fly in close, speaking of this caravan of pilgrims on their way up to Zion. One day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This is being written by the sons of Korah. Do you remember the Korahites? We've mentioned them as we've done these psalms. They rebelled against the authority of Moses. The tents of wickedness was a phrase drawn from that event in Numbers 16, where they were told to come to the threshold of the tabernacle and stand between their tents. And people had to choose. You stand in the tents of Korah or you stand with Moses. And that's where you find this phrase, the tents of wickedness. So this is basically a commentary on Numbers 16 that we see here. And the, the remaining people who didn't, sons of Korah, who didn't choose Korah, they must really understand what this means. It's much better to even just be on the outside of the tabernacle than it is to be in the tents of wickedness because they saw what happened to Korah. Do you remember the earth literally opened up and swallowed them? That's metaphorical of going down. In Hebraic thought, going down was always into the place of Sheol. It's, again, some deep theology going on there. And he says, you are my son and my shield, God's overall provision and protection. God said to Abraham, I am a shield to you. It's a common name for God. He gives grace and glory. Ultimately, it is this grace that will transport us into glory one day. That is what Christ has accomplished for us. The Holy Spirit is our down payment, our deposit, if you could say on that. It is grace and glory. And then he ends this great psalm by saying, O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. And the word trust there is the same concept as faith in the Hebrew. The one who has faith in God. Not the one who is mighty, the one who is powerful, the one who is always strong in faith but the one who has that faith in the Lord, because it is the Lord that is the one that will carry you to Zion. What a wonderful psalm. And I would just challenge you to read that two or three times this week. Let's move on to Psalm 85. We'll go through this a a little quicker in a slightly different way. Now, since the earliest days of the church, the psalms have been a vehicle for prayer and worship. I believe we've maybe lost this in the church today. Uh, The Jewish people, before the time of Christ, they would sing and chant the psalms in the synagogues and the prayers and services in the first few centuries of the early church. And you see this actually in many ancient Christian traditions today. They still sing and chant and have these ceremonies where they go through and revise and memorize the psalms. They are not simply a record of Old Testament spirituality. In many ways, they are a guidebook for the Christian life. And the psalms give us a beautiful recounting of Christian experience. Why do you think so much of the Bible is retelling the story of Israel? Because we learn so many lessons from it. Now, in the ancient church, from at least the second century, it was customary to, when you read the Psalms or when you sing the Psalms or chant the Psalms, you start and end with a doxology. And there was a particular doxology called the Gloria Patri. Most people in evangelical circles, 19th century evangelicalism, we have lost all of this because of the Reformation that reacted so strongly to the liturgical works of the 
Catholics for the last sort of century before that. But let's just skip all of that history and let's go back to a time before that. The early church, the Jewish people, they were a very liturgical community of faith. They had prayers and blessings for all different things. They had creeds that they used to use and recite, and there's a definite uh, godly purpose for them. But the Gloria Patri said this. It said, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, and it there referring to the Trinitarian concept of God, is now and ever shall be world without end. And the point of this is they were saying that the God of the Psalms, this is why they did this with the Psalms, is the triune God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And so the Psalms give us this guide to Christian experience. And it was the only book that they treated slightly differently in the sense that you were allowed to personalize the Psalms. And we do this all the time. Yes, we have historical, grammatical understanding of Scripture and we want to look at the context, but the Psalms was one thing that you were allowed to almost put yourself in it. And that's why the Psalms have been so enduring and they're so rich because they speak of all the emotions of humanity. And this Psalm here that we're going to see is a good example of this. The context seems to be that the Israelites have come back from exile. God has brought them back into their land after being brought out of their land, but yet they're back in and things are going wrong again. And they're crying out once more for God to restore them, for God to save them. And this is how it is for us too. The Christian in every circumstance, we look when we're under judgment or condemnation, when we're in a time of difficulty or trial, we look back to the work of Christ which God has redeemed just like the Israelites would look back to being redeemed from Egypt and being restored to their land after captivity. This is again why salvation is described as being restored, as being freed, as being released from slavery to sin. These are all themes that are drawn from the history of Israel here. So let's look at the first three verses. O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins, Selah. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. So in these first verses, he remembers the deeds of God in the past. Past actions of God's faithfulness can sustain us in difficult times in the present. The past can help you in the present. We don't look back and glorify the past, but we can take many lessons. It can give us confidence for the future. So what should the saints do when we find ourselves in that valley, in that place of sin maybe, in that place of judgment or conviction, in that place, uh, or in 2020 and 2021, we remember. Remembering is good. We literally, that is what remembrance is about. When we take communion, we are doing it in remembrance because we're looking back at the past faithfulness of God. It can help to think back in your own life on answered prayers. If you take notes in a journal, I do that. Often looking back through that is quite encouraging sometimes when you're in a place where you haven't heard from the Lord in a while and see those past actions, those past times of faithfulness. It tells us basically, do not forget. You see, a forgetful mind is a very dangerous thing in a spiritual life, also in the, sort of the history of culture and nations. We must not forget. Remembrance anchors the believer in the reality of what God has done. And in this case, it's restoring the children of Israel from captivity. But look at the actions in these first four verses. It says, you favored. Look, at, God is the one who is doing. The verbs are all about God. You favored, you restored, you forgave, you covered you withdrew, you turned away, you restored your favour on us. It's all about God. God is the focus. And you can sense the gladness of heart from this Old Testament saint writing this psalm. You see, he knows the seriousness of sin. Like, it's a word today that we need to understand, and a lot of the time we like to downplay it. A lot of people, when they speak about it, they don't speak in a biblical way about it, on both the negative and the, well, just the negative side, really. 
But, and I can understand, some people have good motives in doing that. You want to approach a conversation graciously. You need to have wisdom in your speech. But if you're downplaying the actual biblical revelation about what sin is, you're downplaying the very thing that cost Jesus for a reason why Jesus came to die. And if you downplay the seriousness of it, what you are actually subconsciously doing is also downplaying the amazing, wonderful fact of what it took for God to rescue us. And thus, when you downplay one, you actually downplay the other. And if you downplay them both, then your message is not quite as appealing. You have to have these two things together. The psalmist here, I believe, he gets that. He knew why they were in exile. I looked at it with you last time I did the Psalms. We went through Jeremiah. They were in exile because they had forsaken the living God and they were starting to hew their own cisterns and collect their own water. It says they despised the word of the Lord. They rejected the word of God and they ridiculed God's prophets. That's why they were in exile. And there was no reason except God's mercy that he brought them back into the land. He was living in deep gratitude for this undeserved rescue. And it's the same for the New Testament believer. We look back in the same way to the finished work of Christ on the cross and we rejoice in what God has done. That is why Paul says he boasts in nothing but the cross. We are always to remember the great exodus from slavery to freedom. Now you may feel a little bit like you're in the wilderness right now. Like you've, you remember kind of coming out of Egypt and you kind of remember what Egypt was like and you romanticize what life in Egypt was like, just like the Israelites did. You're in the wilderness now. You've been there longer than you thought you would be. You're not sure where you're going. And you've actually got Amalek now coming behind you and starting to pick you off, put temptations in your path. You've seen people fall by the wayside and you're wondering where are, you, where are we actually supposed to be going? And when you lose sight of the destination, then it just seems like you're there forever and you're going to probably drag back, and Amalek will pick you off. This is why the importance of remembering God's past acts of faithfulness is so important. Remember, he redeemed you. He brought you out of Egypt. You're in that place now where, yes, we're learning lessons. The rough edges are being chipped off. We're going through the trials of the wilderness, but one day he will bring us into the promised land. All we have to do is follow him. And for them, in this context, it was follow Moses. That's what the sons of Korah failed to do. That's what he's talking about. And we know that Christ is that prophet like unto Moses, isn't he? This is the whole point of these passages. Verse 4, restore us, O God, of our salvation. Cause your indignation towards us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So now in this next section, he's looked at the past acts of God He now resorts to God as the only hope of salvation and restoration. Again, a very good lesson for us today. In our flesh, we often want to come up with our own solutions. Again, it's part of our self-sufficiency that I was talking about earlier. We may come up with our own ideas, maybe a change of environment, a change of circumstances, maybe a different church, maybe a different preacher, different theology, different job, different perspective on something will change my situation, take me out of that wilderness experience, but it will not. We must take refuge in God. And how often have we seen this refuge concept come up already through the Psalms? And we're only halfway through. Notice verse 4, restore us. Verse 6, revive us. Verse 7, show us your loving kindness. In other words, the psalmist is pointing to God and God alone, his character, his promises and his deeds as the only refuge in this world. We know God delights in showing mercy. And it is in light of this that we resolve to wait for God's full deliverance as we are on those highways to Zion as we're on that pilgrimage now in this world let's read verse 8 to just read the whole rest of it 
I will hear what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. Look at verse 9, verse 8. I will hear what God will say. I will hear what God will say. This is the best response you could ever have to a tough situation. Listen to the word of God. Remember, like I said, why they went into captivity. Solely, the main cause of it really, was because they stopped listening to the word of God and they actually rejected the word of God and ridiculed the word of God. The same soul of the psalmist who longs after the places of God longs to hear the word of God. And where do we find the word of God? Obviously, we we have it revealed to us, but ultimately we have it personified for us in our Lord. You see, the saints that remember the faithfulness of God in the past has that confidence, as this psalmist does here, he has that confidence, what does it say, that God will speak peace. Shalom, wholeness, complete restoration. He knows that the deliverance of the Lord is coming because he's seen it in the past, just as we know that God is coming again to be king because he came to be our sacrifice and our saviour. He wouldn't have bothered with the first if the second wasn't already secured. These two things go together. That is who he is. That is what God delights to do. Remember, wrath and judgment are a response to something that is going against his nature. They are a response to something that violates the image of God. Mercy, loving kindness, and goodness are something that are totally consistent with his image. Therefore, he has an abundance of them to lavish upon us. And you have to understand that because often we flip that round and we think that God is wanting just to pour out wrath and judgment on us. Yes, it flows naturally from his holiness, but in response to something that violates his image. And that is what we need to understand. One day, those things will be gone. And thus, God will just be a fountain of living water to all of us. The trees, the healing, we see this in Revelation. And we see this foreshadowed now in these wonderfully poetic words. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. A wonderful uh, sentence there. It describes a state of affairs where all of these things, these attributes, you could say, come together in harmony. And I don't believe we know that in this world. We're in a fallen world now, a broken world in many ways. Loving kindness and truth seem to be at odds. Righteousness and truth and peace. The truth about our fallen state, the truth about God's holiness, his righteousness, it hinders peace in that respect. You need something to actually have that reconciliation or else you live at enmity. That's what he says in Isaiah 59 verse 2. Your sins have caused a separation between me and God. This is the whole concept. This is the whole reason Jesus came. And I believe we have the ministry of Christ here prophetically foreshadowed in these poetic statements if we read them through Christological eyes. These four divine attributes that were parted from one another at the fall of Adam, they met each other again at the birth of Christ, and then they were fully consummated with the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so they shall ever be united in Christ. And thus, one day when Christ applies that sort of righteousness to the whole earth, they will forever be united in Christ's people, in Christ's dwelling places, and that everyone will have that desire, how I long for the courts of the Lord. And while we see that millennial vision, that eternal vision of all the nations just going up to Jerusalem to hear from this great and wonderful king, that is the fulfillment of all of these things. This is the confidence that the psalmist has that the Lord will do good because he can do no other. That is who he is. This is our God. This is the one we put our trust in. 
the only one who is truly righteous, the only one who loves us with that everlasting love. He is the one we follow. We do not follow anyone else. We must make sure we don't give anyone else the position that Christ should have. His righteousness. And look at this, just this last verse, and then we'll be, we'll be done. I'm fascinated by this last verse. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way, or it may say a path there. It will make his footsteps into a way, a path. You see the righteousness, the feet of Jesus, those feet that walk the dusty shores of Galilee form a path on this earth for us to follow. If you've ever been to my house, you know that I have my house and then my, my wife Sarah has a pet enclosure at the back of the garden. There's grass in between. And if you, she goes there every morning, every night. And if you look at our grass, you'll notice a path going through the middle because she walks on it every morning. doesn't matter how many times you mow that or cut that, that path is always there. And because of that path, whenever anyone else goes up the garden, they seem to just naturally follow that path. And this is a very good picture of what he's saying here. The feet, the righteousness of Jesus came down to this earth. They walked on this earth and they made a path just like that. And that is the path that we are supposed to follow. That is what it literally means to follow Jesus. And I just find that the echoes of that here in this uh, last verse of this psalm. It's the only path that can lead us to Zion. It is the highway to Zion. It is life, it is blessing, and it is the loving kindness of God. Let's commit to following it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we owe everything to you. So much that we can't even really begin to know what it is you've done for us, Lord. But we do give you thanks. We pray, Lord, for all of us here who are, who are struggling, whose hearts are heavy, whose minds need to be renewed, Lord. I just pray that you would meet us in your mercy, in your loving kindness. Fill us with your grace. Fill us afresh with your spirit. Pour in our hearts the fruit of the spirit. Lord, help us to have eyes for no one but you. Help us to be just uh, enamored, Lord, by you, to spend our lives in pursuit of you, learning your character, your wisdom, your will. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be that light for other people, that we would be walking on the path that you've laid ahead of us, and we will come to Zion, Lord, to the city of the great King. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.